Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When someone does something terrible and you step in to clean up their mess, and then you explain what went wrong, and then you show them how to avoid making the same mistake in the future, and then they proclaim their immense gratitude and undying loyalty to you, and then they do the same thing over and over again. What would you do? For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 57 to 66. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 422 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Oh, Joseph of Arimathea. Everybody loves him. That is, everybody who is running a building project, an expansion project, or some effort to grow or expand their church or build their business, whatever they're doing, everybody loves a rich guy with a checkbook. Joseph of Arimathea appears only four times. This is his first appearance, and he's introduced as a rich man. His name, which is linked to Ramah, has the connotation of the heights, not looking good as an introduction on the stage of the New Testament, juxtaposed to the crucified Messiah, not looking good. I know everybody likes him. Oh, what a nice rich guy. <laughs> not so sure that's the case here. The rich guy is always going to be suspect in the New Testament. He also has this connection because he's named Joseph. We have other Josephs that appear throughout the Bible. We have the son of Jacob who becomes the favored of Pharaoh and becomes a master over the land of Egypt. We have Joseph who is the husband or the betrothed of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And this is the rich one. So it sounds a lot more like the one who was the son of Jacob who even though he was the most powerful, even though he was the beloved of Jacob, David came from a different tribe. Good things came from different tribes. They didn't come from Joseph. And Joseph's inheritance even was split in two between Ephraim and Manasseh. So these Josephs of the Bible, they kind of share these characteristics, but the meaning of the name is he will add. What's he going to add? What's he going to continue this is the question that the name raises. What's he going to do? What is his relationship with the 
stepfather, let's say, of Jesus. How does he relate? We begin the story of Jesus's life with a Joseph, and we end Jesus's life with a Joseph. The first Joseph was an honorable man, and this next one is a rich man. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Hear these two verses in order. Hear the syntax and the chronology. He is introduced as someone who had become a disciple of Jesus, and immediately following, where did he go? To Pilate. Why is that? What does he need from the Roman governor if he's a disciple of Jesus? What's the concern here? This pericope, which deals with the burial of Jesus and this interaction with the Roman authority, is a test for the Jewish leadership. Remember, we've been saying that even though this gospel is addressed to a mixed church that is predominantly a Gentile church, there is still a Jewish contingent, and they are the lost sheep. Now, they have consistently throughout the story behaved within the story as though Jesus is the false Messiah, when in fact they are the ones who are the imposters, the false remnant, who are trying to protect something false and fake in a city built by the hand of man, It is not the city whose name is the Lord is there. They're defending something built in stone. And the Matthaean Jesus is coming to rescue these lost sheep. He's coming from the wilderness of green pasture where the flocks are protected. Remember the lilies of the field. He is coming to bring back these lost sheep into the care of of God's shepherd in the field, and instead they execute him. And now what do they want to do? They want to lock him up in a tomb of stone, which is what the temple made by the hand of man is. This is in a way a kind of ultimatum. This is a moment of truth. Going to the Roman authority to ask for the body of Jesus so you can bring it down and lock it up, is a final test. Either you are going to submit to the teaching of God, or you're going to try to lock up Jesus, lock up his teaching, and once again try to control it and be its custodian for your own glory at the expense of everyone else. And you love Joseph of Arimathea, Because rich people are fantastic for this kind of project. They love giving you a big check, and you love taking the money so that you can do whatever it takes to go against what God desires, which always undermines your building project. 
the building project is something that always becomes the focus once we have the building done and once the building is set, then we can start following the gospel. Then we have a place to keep this community so that we can do the gospel with each other, as opposed to being out there doing the gospel, even though the gospel is for the nations, it's to be spread, it's the word for everyone, for the Jew and for the Gentile. The other red flag that was raised for me because of Matthew's training of me, the reader and the hearer of this gospel, is that he was Jesus's disciple. You know, unfortunately, I'm a bit of a cynic. Matthew made me a bit of a cynic because I don't trust disciples of Jesus. I just see disciples as time and time again betraying Jesus. I see them happier about the Jesus part than about the disciple part. They love having the stamp of Jesus. They love being a card-carrying member of the Jesus Club, but being a disciple and actually following this teaching that Jesus is trying to teach, the disciples are not very good at that. Peter was not willing to speak up during the crucifixion. The Marys stood afar off when this happened. The rulers of the synagogue wanted Jesus to die. Where was Joseph? Why did Joseph only appear once Jesus was dead? If Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, how come we never heard of him before the death? Why is he just appearing now? Was he sitting at the feet of Jesus? Matthew never mentioned him. None of the other gospel accounts mention him except at the time of the crucifixion. That's why he appears four times. He appears four times because he's in each one of the gospel crucifixion scenes, because he's there to collect the body. But collecting the body, why is he not there collecting the teaching? Why is he not there requesting the living body of Jesus? Why is he not protesting the kangaroo court that put him up on the cross? If he's got money, he has influence. But rich people use their influence to save themselves, not to save others. The disciple wants to hold on to the teaching and put it into a brick box that we call a church rather than reading it to the Gentiles and, as you said, Father, out on the land with the flock. How does Joseph follow that shepherd? He wants to hold the shepherd in his back pocket. He wants to keep the shepherd with him. He wants to be able to control the shepherd because if he controls the shepherd, he doesn't have to worry about which way he's going to have to turn. He gets to decide. Pilate seemed to go along with this. Pilate's work was done. Jesus was dead. And Joseph lost the opportunity to do his work, which was to intervene on behalf of Jesus, even at the risk of his own life. So Joseph, I don't think we can trust him as much as we feel like we want to, because it feels like he did something nice to Jesus. But I don't know, because Joseph was not there when Jesus needed him. Jesus is dead now. God is going to take care of him now, not Joseph. Joseph took the body of Jesus and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Is he a student of Jesus? Did he not hear the people asking Jesus to come down from the cross? Why is he taking Jesus down from the cross? This will be emphasized more forcefully in Mark. Joseph of Arimathea is presented in Mark not as a rich man, but as a member of the council 
that conspired against Jesus. Remember what we said about Mary Magdalene functioning differently in each gospel. Joseph functions differently in each gospel. Here he is presented specifically as a rich man who takes the body of Jesus down. He doesn't ask if Jesus is dead, but he's presented as a student of Jesus, a rich man, he has that name, Arimathea, and he treats Pilate as the reference. And this mentality, which views the city as one's reference and not the gospel, persists in the bringing down of the body and the placing of the body in a tomb hewn out of rock and then the sealing of the body. Why is he trying to lock Jesus up? Why? What does he want to do with this body of Jesus? Why is it so important for him to have this body? Why does he want to put him in his own tomb? I went on vacation to New Orleans recently, and they have a different burial practice there. They have family tombs. You put a body in the tomb, and after a few decades, the heat will pulverize the body, will turn into dust, and you can sift it down, and then you can put another body on top of that, and then the ashes sink to the bottom of the tomb, and you can just put body after body in. So you have a family tomb. Joseph has his own tomb. But you didn't use a tomb for just one person. You used a tomb for a family, for a clan. Perhaps Matthew is pointing to the idea that Joseph wants to claim Jesus as one of his. He doesn't want to belong to Jesus, but he wants to lay claim to Jesus. He wants to call himself a disciple. He wants to be the one who finds the burial place for Jesus. He wants to be the one who can put him not in just a tomb that he built, but his own tomb that he built. Jesus is going to be an Arimathean now because he's buried with Joseph and Joseph's line, the Jacob line that ends up going nowhere into Ephraim that eventually gets taken away during the Assyrian invasion. I'm talking about the Old Testament Joseph now. This is how this Joseph functions. He wants Jesus to be part of his genealogy. And, you know, you and I, Father, we talk all the time about the genealogy of humanity in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 and how this all plays out. But this genealogy, the Toledot, he joins Jesus to his Toledot as opposed to the other way around, as opposed to becoming a slave in the household of Jesus. He wants Jesus to be in his household. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. So we have now the second mention of Mary and the other Mary. And here I would only call to mind the meaning of the name Magdalene. Bitter Tower and the other Bitter were there sitting opposite the grave. Changes the way you hear the name of the church in verse 61 that is being addressed by the gospel. And why wouldn't the tower be bitter when its hold is being called into question? (laughs) The validity and the premise of the tower is on the line. The tomb is another kind of tower. That's the whole point. 
you want to build a tomb, you want to build a temple, you want to build a fortress, and you want to secure it and make it as secure as you can and put a custodian, a guard, you want to control it, you want to manipulate it, you want to own it. That's what you say at the beginning of the liturgy. You make the claim that it is time for the Lord to act. But who are you to say so? The Lord acts when he wants to act. He keeps his own time. Jesus in Matthew tells us that no one knows the day or the hour. So how is it that we tell the Lord that it's time for the Lord to act? You can't control Jesus. You can't control his teaching. You can't control God. You don't own God. God isn't your identity. Christ is not the identity that you own that sets you apart from other people. He's not the foundation of your institution or your building or your city. He's not a flag that you can put on your tank or your airplane. Remember, remember, the buildings give birth to bombs. I saw a picture on the AP Newswire a month ago of the Annunciation Cathedral in the background and a warship in the foreground. I have nothing else to say on the subject. That says it all. And we need to be honest with ourselves and with each other about what men build and about the hope of the gospel as an alternative. God does not make buildings and he does not make bombs. He makes babies. Go back and reread Isaiah. It goes back to what we've been saying over the course of several episodes, Father. They can't look at the ugliness. They want to pretend everything was fine before and then they want to paper over everything afterwards. Peter didn't want to do anything before. He wanted to just get Jesus's pat on the back, and then when it was go time, he disappeared. Joseph, who was supposedly a disciple, we don't even find out he was a disciple until after Jesus died. Great timing, Joseph. And these women, nobody wants to get up and say the emperor has no clothes. No one wants to get up and say the worship and the cathedral are not compatible. No one wants to say that the worship is causing the very problems that the Torah is offered to fix. No one wants to say that Mary gave birth to a son and buildings give birth to warships. No one wants to say it. They want Joseph of Arimathea to cut a check they want to build the cathedral. They want to cover the gospel with gold and jewels and leave it sitting there and leave it at that. That's what they want, and the result is war. And you may quote me. Now, on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. This is the scandal. Jesus was teaching 
up until the point that he died. We emphasize this how many times, Father? And everyone wants to talk about Joseph of Arimathea and how great he was. Where was Joseph when it mattered? Where was Joseph's riches? Where was Joseph's pull with Pilate? Where was he when Jesus was still alive? They knew that Jesus was going to pull a fast one and say he was going to rise again, which they were all worried about, which is what Pilate's wife was already worried about early on. And now they want to deal with it after the fact. He said he was going to rise again. He was a liar. Was he a liar? The only liars I remember are the ones that the leaders of the temple went out to find who would witness falsely against Jesus. Those are the only liars I know. And those were the ones who said, what? That Jesus claimed that he was going to rise again after the dead. (laughs) It's not this deceiver that said it. It was the false witnesses. Jesus didn't say it. The irony is that the chief priests and Pharisees said, we remember that he said this. He didn't say it. Their false witnesses said that. But then when they wouldn't agree with each other, they had to find a different charge, and that's what they had him crucified for. It's all keystone coppery, actually. But it's not a comedy. It ends with the death of Jesus. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Truer words were never spoken. The last deception is worse than the first. Because the first time in the wickedness of Canaan, in Genesis, the Lord broke apart the assembly of the nations and spread them out when he peopled the earth and there was hope and Israel was the example even though Canaan was cursed reread Romans but now now the gospel has been preached to the nations and now the shepherd has come to rescue the lost sheep of Israel time is running out there is no third chance You will not see him again until he comes at the right hand of power and you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And it won't be pretty. This is it. It's a worse scandal. It's a much worse scandal the second time around. The fraud of your religion was bad enough the first time, but the new fraud of your religion is much worse this time. Because why would you reject God's teaching twice? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? You're going to reject it twice on the record in the story? This isn't historical in that sense, as these are characters in the story rejecting it twice, which means that all of the ire that I'm presenting in my explanation of this verse, Richard, is is being redirected at you and me and the addressees of the Gospel of Matthew. You can't historicize it and then point at a group of people in history. It applies to the addressees of the story, 
Because how many times have you heard Matthew and you still aren't hearing what he's saying? I mean, who is lying? What's the deceit they're worried about? The only deceit is the deceit that landed Jesus in this tomb to begin with, which was a lie from the very beginning. The search and the determination for power that the priests and the Pharisees who came together, which actually is a bit surprising to me that the chief priests and the Pharisees would come together, but it shows this conspiracy, and then how they conspired with Pilate, that they would want to keep Jesus and his disciples out. That's the point, right? They want to keep Jesus and his disciples out of the power arrangement that they have. I mean, look, in 63, what do they call Pilate? They don't say Mr. Pilate. They say Kyrie, Lord. Pilate is their Lord. And the lie, the deceit that they're worried about this plani, it's the one that they got rolling to begin with, because for heaven's sake, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. If only his disciples were as diligent and uh, <laughs> and honorable as that, that they would actually like be able to put some kind of plan like that into place and steal the body and stuff. I don't have any hope in the ability of Jesus's disciples to be able to plan and execute anything that might be as slick as this conspiracy that they would like to assume they could do. I mean, I, come on. So really what they're trying to do is they're still consolidating their own power with their Kyrios pilot. Look, Rich, I'm hearing it against the functional Peter in the canon you have the functional Peter in the story who betrayed Christ, and then you have the functional Peter at the end of the canon who is presented as the Peter who is preaching what Matthew is preaching about the judgment. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, Peter himself says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. This is spoken by the functional character who himself was Jesus' close student and then betrayed him and is now preaching what Matthew is preaching in his letter. So it's ominous. You had a chance, and you were given the opportunity, given this last chance, to submit and accept the teaching of Jesus Christ. In the case of Joseph of Arimathea, you were his student. Don't mess it up! Because the last deception will be worse than the first. The last state will be worse than the first. Nothing is worse than going back to your original condition. It's worse the second time around. Everybody thinks we're talking about the resurrection. We're talking about the deception of your religion and your religiosity. And you using the law and the prophets as your identity. You using God as the foundation for your building and your culture and your nation, instead of allowing him to break all those things and smash them so that you would just be a Ben Adam, Min Adama, like Jesus Christ, someone who understands that you are no different than all the nations. The only differentiator is that God 
who is unique and above. God himself, who is the differentiator, imparted to you the special grace of his law, which showed you that you were no different than anyone else. So how are you trying to use that law to say you're better than everyone else? I can't explain the Bible any more succinctly than that, Dr. Benton. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go make it as secure as you can. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. And the word for guard, custodia, custodian, emphasizes this point. They want to control. They think they're the custodians of Jesus and the teaching that he brings. They want to impose their security. We don't want their security. We want the security that comes from the Father of Jesus, which is terrifying to them because they saw what happened to Jesus. They want the security that comes from the checkbook of Joseph of Arimathea, and Joseph wants the security that comes from Pilate. And everybody loves the security that comes from putting Jesus inside a big stone tomb sealed with a big heavy rock. Go make it as secure as you can. Do your best. It's a challenge. This is your shot. Like I always say, Rich, you get one chance to kill Jesus. <laughs> you better make it stick. You better make it stick. Yeah, it's just like Eminem, one shot. You got one shot. <laughs> and here they seal it, which means they put not just something that will be tamper-proof, but you have to put your seal in it. It means you put your initials on this. They want to own this tomb. They want to control this tomb. Joseph of Arimathea wanted to put him in his tomb for his family. The chief priests and the Pharisees wanted to seal the tomb and make it theirs. Everyone wants to control the body of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the man Jesus. But everyone continues to ignore the teaching of Jesus, which unfortunately is already out there. It's already out there. You put Jesus's body in a tomb, seal it up. You know, you could put the kitchen sink up against the rock so you can't move the rock. But the teaching is out there. It is that voice that the sheep are going to listen to. The chief priests and the Pharisees have already given up that people are going to listen to them. They have to do it by force. Pilate just waited until he heard what the crowd said and then told the crowds what they were saying anyway. So then they thought that Pilate was saying something and they were following what Pilate was saying. It's the other way around. Pilate was following the crowd and then said what they wanted to hear. Okay? Everyone is trying to control. Everyone is trying to control. Unless they're trying to completely stay out of it, like Peter who wants to save his keister and the women who are always standing afar off. Everyone wants to stay safe, wants to control, and be in control. They want to manage the situation. But the situation is out of control. And we're going to see how out of control it actually is. Now, out of control, I'm saying it from the point of view of the disciples, Joseph, Pilate, chief priests, Pharisees, and Marys. But it is all 
in control in the palm of the hand of the Father of Jesus, who is the shepherd, who is the one who owns the flock, who sets someone in his stead to manage the flock and to guide the flock and to keep the flock safe. And that voice is there and it's established and there's nothing that people can do about it. There's no way to box in that voice once that word is out. Thanks, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.